Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week on Tiny Acts of Bravery is Kate Rothschild. I am really deeply grateful to Kate for having this conversation with me since I think she is one of the bravest women I know. In the summer of 2019, Kate's beloved, brilliant, beautiful daughter Iris was killed in a freak accident involving a piece of farm machinery. Iris was just 15 and on the cusp of adult life. I learned about Iris's short and powerful life after Kate started regularly posting about her daughter on Instagram. We occasionally exchanged messages and in 2020, after my sister Nell had also died, Kate came down to visit me in Oxfordshire and we sat in my kitchen for a day. And even remembering this now makes me feel very emotional. And we talked about death and life and what it feels like to go on living after the death of someone you love beyond measure. It was really generous of Kate to continue this conversation with me again here, where she tells me about the year of convalescence she felt she spent following Iris's death and the extraordinary and optimistic fact of finding green shoots of optimism and life and things to hold on to after this most shocking, most horrendous loss that she experienced. This was a really important conversation to me. I was so grateful to Kate for opening up to me like this. And I hope that you find this conversation as helpful and inspiring and beautiful as I have done. Kate, thank you so much for coming here to talk to me today. I have been really really looking forward to talking to you and I'm really grateful for this I mean it's a brave thing to do to come and talk about <laughs> to talk about what we what we are about to talk about but I wanted first of all to ask you about whether you would tell us about your daughter Iris who died in 2019 would you tell us about what she was like as a little girl and as a girl growing up um yeah, of course. And um, thank you very much for having me. Um, gosh, I mean, it's the hardest thing to do to describe, I don't know, one's child, I suppose. I um, uh, I mean, I guess I think everybody thinks that their child is amazing and wonderful and extraordinary. But I mean, Iris really was. Mm. She was, um, she was always this incredibly bright star. And, um, and I think, and like someone once told me actually that there's that some people say that like the really special ones, you know, sometimes get taken early sort of thing. But she was this kind of incredible, sort of fierce, loyal, kind uh, little girl from very, very early on. But she was also incredibly sort of um, uh, dedicated and hardworking. And she was this sort of the child that like I had teachers sort of crying in in the parents' meetings because she was so wonderful and brilliant and such a joy to teach. And so, I mean, nothing like me, basically. <laughs> she was basically just uh, like an incredibly sort of um, brilliant version of, of, I don't know, of, um, of a little girl. And, um, and she continued to be, you know, throughout her life. She, you know, she was um, 
very, very funny and very um, insightful and just kind of saw people, like mm. saw into people in a way that was like w- a way beyond her years. Um, and yeah, she, she was she was magical. Did you have a very, very close relationship with her yeah. as your daughter? We were incredibly close. Um, you know, sometimes maybe I would say it too close. Like she was very sort of, dependent on me in terms of I don't know we just I would talk like a hundred times a day Mm. and um you know because I had her very very young I had her when I was 20 Mm. and then I mean I I and from and I and you know and that's at the point when me and Ben separated you know we were I sort of was you know, Ben was always there and always present, but but really I was like bringing her up by myself and we were sort of figuring it out together and we sort of grew up together in yeah. a way. And so, and in some ways she was sort of, and sort of more ma- more mature and clever than I was <laughs> <laughs> and sort of would like tick me off about stuff. And we had, we were very, very close. I think there's something particularly lovely about also, I mean, the fact that you were 20, I was 24 when I had my son and that feeling of the age gap between you really not being that intense. No. And as you say, when you're, you know, as we know, like a 20, in, into your 20s, you're still very much almost like a child yourself. Completely. Really, when I see 20-year-olds now, I'm like, I cannot believe mm. that I had a child <laughs> at that age and three children by 25. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, and, you know, um, and I'm also not, I've not the most grown-up adult anyway. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so... So it, the gap seemed quite small at times, I have to say. Will you tell me about the circumstances of Iris's death? What happened to her? Um, yeah, so what happened to her was... So I'd been in London with her um, and she had come to London. She had come and I'd gone to the countryside. I have a, a house that's near my ex-husband's house and she was coming to the countryside to stay with him so she um came quite late at night and everyone was a bit sort of annoyed with her because she was coming too late and da, 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 da. but anyway whatever she was like mm. I'm coming so she came and um she was staying there and I was staying in my house and then the next morning I um I went over to see her to give her a cup of tea and stuff because Ben had gone to play at a cricket match and um, sort of and I was going back to London because I was going to do some work or something and so I uh, left her there and during the course of the day she was just you know hanging out with her friend who was there with her and she was sort of you know they had this vehicle on the farm that they you know had been driving since they were very young which was you know in my mind the safer of the vehicles that you get on a farm mm-hmm. there was also quad bikes and stuff but it it was like a sort of mule thing and she had you know been driving it um and she went to pick up her friend who was lives on the farm next door and I think probably was driving, trying to scare her friend in a kind of funny, like, daredevilly way because she was quite brave and quite daredevilly. And I think, and she just somehow managed to tip the thing over, and um, and she and you know got trapped underneath and mm. and yeah. <laughs> the loss of a child. There's, I mean, there is something particularly 
poignant and deeply tragic about Iris's death, the loss of a child at the age that she was 15. Yeah. So as her mother, you've taken her through her childhood and you've mm. got her at the point where she's just kind of, you know, flying out into yeah. the world and alighting from you. In those days after her death, how did you get through those days? How did you survive those days? Um, I think that I don't really know how it works or what happens to your body when something so sort of traumatic and horrifying happens. All I can say is that um, I remember when I look back on the day, the per you know, the girl calling me and telling me there's been an accident and then, you know, people not picking up the phone mm. and me sort of knowing that, mm. you know, I kind of, I can see it. It's so weird. It's like an out-of-body experience. So mm. when, I, when I look back at me arriving at the site of the crash, um, it's as if I'm looking at the top of my own head. Like I honestly believe that something within you, I don't know whether it's adrenaline, I don't know whether it's just your body protecting you from, you know, just your heart, like, stop, you know, like that if the full reality of it was to hit you in that moment, that your heart might literally start beating mm. sort of thing. And so I feel like it was almost like a dream. And um, I was very much kind of out of my body. And I, I, I basically, I think, um, what's the word they call it? Like de detach or whatever it's called or disassociated yeah. very, very strongly. Um and those days were just a complete um, sort of frozen blur, really. And then sort of going to the hospital and being with her in the hospital and in the morgue and stuff. It's like, it just all feels like I'm watching it from the other side of the room. Mm. Um, and so I don't know really how you get through that. I think that nature has a way of protecting you from mm. the full impact of of what it, of what it all means mm. i think you don't really know how to feel and you just go into this kind of strange um zombie like state and then i think that other things happen like maybe you're going mad or maybe you're not but you know when i was in the morgue with her and she was there i guess her voice started talking to me and it was almost as if, because, you know, she would always need my help in all sort of any situation. So like if like she was upset over a friend or if she was upset over, you know, a situation that she couldn't sort of figure out, whether it's a school, some schoolwork or she needed to kind of, I don't know, get home from a party or something. Mm. She would always like call me and be like, mom, da, 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 da. And I sort of, it was so, it was so strange. It was like, she was speaking to me like, um, mom. <laughs> I'm so sorry and you know saying how sorry she was and how she doesn't really know how to what to do like it's so it's hard to explain but it was like I mean I don't know it was almost like she needed my help to figure out where to go next kind of mm. thing even though she was gone mm. um and then I continuously had her talking to me and it was almost as if she had she wasn't gone and that was in the immediate, obviously in yeah. the immediate aftermath of her death. Yeah. And did you feel because there is, I mean, 
Remembering my sister's death, which was in 2019, a few months after Iris's death, it was very different because she was 46 and she had died from cancer. But in that immediate aftermath, in the days straight after, uh, I did feel as though there was something, uh, which is, I'm sure is like a physiological thing, but it felt very spiritual as well, that sense that she was still very close and you could still touch her. And I guess the yeah. past where she was still alive was very, very close by and you can lean back into the past and there she is. Did you feel as though, and I felt as though I could communicate with Nell at that time. Yeah, Did you feel too. as though you were you were truly communicating Ab with her? Yeah, then? absolutely. Yeah. I felt that she was very close by and and that we were still sort of completely connected in some way. And I don't know whether it's because when your child dies or someone who you love so dearly, you sort of, part of you sort of goes with them mm. or whether it is some kind of amazing spiritual thing or whether it's just simply your brain creating uh, comfort. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I do know that when Ben went to see this um, medium, she said to him, uh, your, your, Iris's mother can hear her talking to her, but she doesn't believe that it's really her. She needs to understand that she can, you know, she is, she's, she's trying to talk to her. And it was so weird because I hadn't really told anyone that I mm. could hear her constantly talking to me in my head. Cause I just thought everyone would, I, to be honest, I wasn't really communicating of very course. well, but, um, it was quite, it was strange. And I did, I felt her with me all the time, like constantly. How long did that feeling of her connection to you, how long did well, that go Well, I don't for? really feel like, so I don't speak to her. I don't, if I, I can kind of summon up her her voice and talk to her in my head if I want, but I, I still feel that she's very, very close to me. Mm. I still feel that she is in some way beside me and connected to me. Um, it's really hard to fully put it into words, but there's just like a sort of calm knowledge or calm, like very deep within me understanding that in some way she's still beside me. After Iris died, I sent you a message on Instagram. We hadn't met before. We'd never spoken before, but I, like many people, was very, very moved and touched by the images of her that that you'd posted on social media and it was very uh generous of you actually to kind of share her she was such a beautiful girl and she? she was so kind of luminous mm. and I remember looking at pictures of her and feeling the poignancy I mean and the tragedy of this beautiful beautiful girl as I said on the kind of cusp of adulthood yeah. just the 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 um the deep sadness of that and i messaged you and my sister then died shortly after that and mm. um you came down to my house in oxfordshire and we sat and we talked about death for a day and yeah. how death transforms you and then you very kindly lent me your cottage one weekend to go and well a week where i did a writing retreat there so mm. that's how we yeah. have met and know each other and i when i first met you i felt as though you the way that you talked about Iris and the way that you embodied her in a way mm. was an incredibly beautiful and also brave thing that you were doing continually day after day after day. Do you, is there a moment, because this, you know, this is a conversation about bravery that you mm. see as the time when you have had to be particularly brave during mm. this whole um, period of time since her death? Um. Well, I think 
that probably the, what you sensed in terms of the kind of embodying and the sort of being present like that would be, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I ended up, I don't know, um, expressing myself in that way was because um, I felt that's what Iris wanted me to do. Mm. And because Iris um, was at the center of an incredibly tight group of girlfriends, of friends that she just adored and who adored her. And they all lived at my house. I mean, it was literally like a commune um, when, you know, when she was alive. And she would kind of have like sort of so many sort of people in and out all the time. And she was very much sort of the center of that. And she was really there um, because, as I told you, she was very, very insightful. She was very wise for her age. And she was really a support system to a lot of these girls. And and sometimes even she would kind of bring them to sort of talk to me about their problems or talk to me about things they were going through. You know, teenage girls, they go through so much, mm-hmm. especially now. Um, and I felt after she died, I just felt her, she she was saying to me and I knew because I just knew her so well because we were, I mean, I was just so, I was so close. I knew how her mind worked better than, you know, anyone. She really understood me better than anyone ever has or ever will. And I knew that what she would want from me and what she wanted most of all was for me to be with her friends and to help her friends Mm -hmm. to get through this because they were really just completely devastated. And, um, And so I feel that there was a moment which was that they created this beautiful um, sort of shrine really to Iris at this big tree in um, Barnes Common near our house, which was sort of the point where you turn into our house. And it was just like extraordinary. They'd worked so hard on it. They'd brought everything that had ever reminded them of Iris and pictures and flowers and candles. And it was just amazing. And we were, I was sort of in the country, sort of this was, would be sort of a week after it happened or something. And you know, that, you know, the instinct or the, you're compelled to just sort of hide and stay Mm -hmm. and not get out of bed and curl up and just be in this sort of ball of sadness. And, but I felt that I had to, um, for her, because this is what she would have wanted. I had to go and like, they were asking me to come and see the shrine and come and see them and stuff. I think they felt they needed to see me to feel some kind of connection to her Mm. and to feel like, you know, it was, I don't know that, I don't know, but essentially I came to London and it was hard. It was so hard. It was hard to be with them because they were so alike, like Iris and they were just living and they had everything ahead of them. And you know, all of the sort of turn of phrase or the smells of their body Mm. spray or their Mm. clothes or, you know, it was just like, you know, it was as if she was still there. And it was, um, it was very hard, but it was also really important, I think. And I felt that that is what she would want me to do. And I, it's hard. And when, um, when she was alive, I was essentially like her personal assistant (laughs) and basically just carried out her wishes in all different ways. And so I felt that that was really the only, I mean, how could I continue that, that sort of role in, you know, beyond her, her death. And so I just did everything I knew she would want me to do. And so, you know, I, I tried to, I went to see the shrine and I 
hugged her friends and we did all of this stuff and things. And, you know, it was really good for the boys as well. Mm. And then, um, and it was actually extraordinary because in a way they, you know, something about the young and something about that generation, you know, they didn't want to hide away. They wanted to come together and they wanted to, you know, everyone to grieve together, which I think is a really primal and ancient Mm. and important way of dealing with grief that maybe we have forgotten in, you know, recent generations and also building these shrines and these sort of outward displays of grief and um and actually they taught us a really it was it was a really difficult thing to do but because I did that I really understood the power of it and how helpful it is and how beautiful it can be and so from that point on I kind of took on the sort of responsibility of the shrine and every month we would do this a new kind of um a new display at the tree. So we did one where there's like millions of ribbons and one where we did a Christmas one and every month we would do a new one. And it was so helpful for her friends and it was so helpful for my sons Mm. because they felt once a month that they could um, create something for her and that they were paying their respects and that they could then pour out their sadness and their grief in that moment and Mm. then they could go on with their lives Mm. and not feel like they'd forgotten her or that they weren't honoring her Mm. and stuff and um, that's what I felt too I felt when I could I couldn't like tidy her room anymore and I couldn't sort of go and do all of the different things that she would you know ask me to do in life but I could do this for her. It's really interesting what you've just said about the idea of the ritualized yeah. um, group activity, I yeah. suppose, and that feeling of coming together with people yeah. who love the beloved lost person. Yeah. And that, I suppose, is a way as well. I think it's it's the fact that you did it monthly mm. must have been incredibly difficult for you as well because it gives you that sense of time passing and moving, yeah. moving forward. I've found the movement of my um, sister into the past, I suppose, sometimes an intolerably yeah kind of unacceptable yeah i know and <laughs> you know the and and the fact of her being in now and really quite the long distance yeah past. and covid exacerbated that didn't it because then we all went into this completely unreal world of something mm. something other how have you and the passing of time is devastating and also yet really beautiful because it does reveal itself you know life Mm. continues to reveal itself Mm. how do you continue to kind of mark the passing of time or cope with the passing time as well um I feel like I think there is some truth in the in the fact that it does get easier with the passing of time Mm. and Um, And I also, in a way, feel that how much we honored her in the first couple of years, I really feel like we we did our job with that Mm. and we did everything that we could have done for her. And so beyond that, I just feel that, you know, I just take her with me and I go through my life and you know we had we, we set up the iris project which is you know something that's sort of wonderful in her name and i just keep her with me you know when you look back at yourself as a younger woman 
as a much younger woman before mm. all of this, mm. and then what you have endured and not just endured, but you know, you are remarkable and incredibly brave. What has what was Iris's death? I mean, I don't like even saying those words. I've, mm. it, it, there is something sort of so grotesque, isn't there, about having to say Iris's grave or Iris's, yeah. Iris's death. I mean, Nell's grave, I find find that really hard. But what have you learnt from that about bravery, I suppose, that you could communicate to your younger self? I think what I've learned is that the human spirit is just an extraordinary thing and just... I really believe, like, honestly, I always said I really believe, because my children were everything, mm. to, ev are everything to me, were everything to me. And I honest, I really believe that I would not be able to survive mm. losing a child. I just couldn't imagine. And the truth is that, you, that I did, and you can. And we have an extraordinary kind of fire within us that will get us through unbelievable hardships and unbelievable sadnesses, you know, and I'm, you know, I lost a child, but there are people who have lost more children, you know, terrible mm. things have happened. And the human spirit, like the will to survive and to go on and to thrive, and it just is, it's, it's indomitable, it's extraordinary and should never be sort of underestimated, really. I mean, you know, not only did I get through it, but you know, I'm happy. Mm. You know, like I, you know, I, yeah. I have, you know, I have a very deep sadness in part of me. But it's just, it's just a, an aspect of who I am. But it doesn't mean that I'm not happy. It doesn't mean I don't love, you know, playing with my baby or that I don't enjoy going out for mm. dinners or that I don't have a laugh with my teenage sons. You know, like I, I am happy mm. and. You know, I also think that when something like that happens, you know, it's a bit of a sort of cliche. They say that, you know, the cracks are where the light gets in and stuff. Like, I believe that I am a more, much kind of stronger, wiser, more empathetic person than I, than I was before. Like, I'm, it's almost like in some ways it's the worst tragedy that could happen, but it's also in some ways a wonderful gift. It's such a strange and difficult and interesting fact that isn't yeah. it? it is a fact it isn't is it? yeah and it's kind of difficult to articulate the feeling of the gift that death gives you yeah. and I really felt that after Nell died like I didn't want to accept this appalling gift you know this yes. terrible terrible yeah. gift was there a time when you felt you were sort of accepting that gift I suppose I know that yeah. when, after Nell died I felt a few but it's different because my sister so but I felt about six months after she died, I felt as though there was a forward momentum and a feeling of mm. growth. Mm. Was, there a, was there a time when you felt like you could see the strange, dark, multicolored beauty within what was happening to you? Yeah, I think that probably about a year after after Iris died, I basically watched Netflix for a year. <laughs> and I like, they call it, I mean, the, uh, living among, I don't know if you've heard the living amongst the ashes. I don't um, know that. It's this, it's this extraordinary kind of, because um, it, it's in ancient Scandinavian cultures, the person who had lost somebody um, or was grieving was basically they they were left in the in the long room or whatever to tend the ashes right. and to just and that was all they were really considered capable of is just ten like keeping the fire keeping alive the fire and alive. they would do that for a year and they would you know they wouldn't nothing else would be expected of them and also funnily enough like 
they also considered those people to be the most wise and the most in, in connected with like the other world, the mm. spiritual world, because they're essentially living between the two places during that time. Um, and yeah, so I feel for a year, I really lived in the ashes and I watched Netflix and I completed Paul Dark and I just <laughs> lay in bed and I just, I think what really was happening was my body was putting me back together. Mm-hmm. I think I, just as you, as you heal from a, like a, an accident or a, or, or a deep wound, a, like a physical scar, I think my body was just sort of threading myself back together essentially and healing. And um, on the other side of that, I just started to feel like I was just coming back to life again, little green shoots of joy and they're mixed in with guilt as well because you're like how can I be enjoying this when she is not here and you know and it's a it's a really complicated long uh, sort of up and down process Mm -hmm. um but it does sort of start to happen you know like just sort of spring comes again and I actually because you you said earlier that COVID was like such a weird time but I actually found it incredibly helpful because you know, Iris died in the July and then it was the next March that we went into lockdown. Mm. And it was sort of useful for me because my life had really ground to a halt. And I was sort of just in the middle of my sort of ground zero. And then um, and then everyone's life ground to a halt. And no one, because, you know, part of the time you're thinking to yourself, my God, I need to get back doing stuff. I need to go back to work. Da, da, da. How am I? And then everyone sort of did. And in a way, we all got to be together. And then my boys were with me and we could, it was quite a healing time mm. for me. Um, so, yeah, and just slowly, slowly, you just find yourself coming out of it. Um, and it's sort of, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. And do you think there is, because some people say about horrific, tragic circumstances, well, I wasn't brave. I just, you know, I had to, I had to get on with it. Mm. But I do think there is a special sort of bravery in grief and in people who have lost somebody they love in a very untimely and tragic fashion. It's mm. obviously different from somebody dying much later on in their life. But do you think there is a kind of bravery to allowing yourself to accept that gift and you just talk, you just mentioned like seeing the green shoots mm. there is a bravery and a courage to kind of allowing the glistening green to come into your life isn't there yeah i think so i think that um and a sort of defiance, defiance which i think is yeah. kind of bravery like i you know the one of the main reasons because I would watch Netflix in the day, but when my son Isaac came home from school, I would get up and I would make, because I was just determined that everybody's life wasn't going to be ruined by this. And, you know, that they, because one of the things I really actually found um, heartbreaking was during the period of time after Iris died, I would find my boys like looking into my face, kind of just, and I could tell they were just so scared that they were going to lose, lose me, not Mm. lose me, not, I wasn't going to die, but just that I, that their happy life they had known and this happy, fun mum was going to disappear. And I think that really for me was what drove me to, um, sort of get up Mm. and get better and, and welcome those green shoots Mm. and, you know, pursue the joy that I knew would be there eventually um, and just not to sort of give up. And yeah, so it was just, you know, it was really defiance. Like I wasn't going to let them, um, you know, let them down like that. 
there's something very powerful as well in the, I remember somebody said to me, my friend Selena Blow said, you have to go and love the living, mm. you know, and protect the living and be with the yeah, living. And that's what matters. Yeah. In the, in the aftermath of death, you want to, well, there is an instinct, isn't there, to kind of remain present with and the dwell dead. dwell with them. Yeah. yeah. And that need to go. And that takes courage, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's just facing, it's just sort of like putting the pain, you know, to the back of your, to the back of mm. your consciousness or mm. trying to just keep it to the side for a while and mm. just, you know, get up and push forward because um, I didn't want our house to become a ghost house. Mm. And they needed me. And to deal, I suppose, in quite small chunks of time, mm. you know, the next hour or something like that, do do something yeah. nice for a, for a short period of time. Did you have, I mean... To people, for people listening to this, have there been things that you have done which have been specifically useful? I mean, have you? I had some grief therapy, which I found really helpful. Have mm. there been kind of practical things that you've done? I had some sort of in the immediate aftermath, um, mm. we had some kind of grief therapy stuff, which was helpful. And she had some helpful tools mm. that uh, I found useful along the way. Um, I, I, I do believe this thing of um, creating kind of physical spaces um, where we were able to feel we were sort of doing Iris a service and creating something beautiful for her and doing that on a regular basis. I found that incredibly helpful. And I found my boys found it incredibly helpful because they don't, because, you know, they were teenage boys. They don't really know how to talk about mm. it. They don't really know how to behave within that. And um, and so for them, sort of like sweeping up the dead petals from the last one and, you know, putting out the new candles and, uh, you know, tying the ribbons and just helping to create these um, sort of spaces and these monuments. And then all of her friends would come and they would all be together. Like for me, that was by far and away the most helpful thing. Mm. And it was so helpful for the young, young people as well. And I, if I could give advice to someone who has lost someone that would be my advice, would be to try to sort of uh, put it into physical action of mm. some sort and create something. I just, it, it was helpful for us. And I suppose in that creation together, then you are also connecting to one another, aren't yeah. you? And that isolation of, because grief is so deeply isolating, yeah. isn't it? You feel so deeply, deeply alone. Yeah, and it gives a space to it. And it means that she, you feel like she is given space to sort of, exist in that moment more you know real in a real way for everybody because everyone would talk about her you know like and it's a and you know in the previous like my father when he died we never really spoke about him again mm -hmm. like people didn't like at some point during the time of span of human history people stopped talking about yeah. stuff and grief was really brushed aside and put into you know we don't talk about that we get on with it and um this way like we always gave her at least you know a night where it was her night and we would talk about her and we would laugh. We would, you know, it's not like we were all crying all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, we would laugh about funny stories with her and all of her friends would come no matter where they were, what schools they were at. If, you know, they would all come to our house and we would do this once a month for that entire, you know, first period of time. And then, you know, and then we would do it a bit less and, 
you know, because then you don't want it to become a kind of oppressive thing where you feel you have to yeah. then continue to do that. Yeah. Um, and I did it on, I sort of, and the Instagrams that I would do were really an extension of that. Mm. They were like a little sort of, a little ritual each month that I would do um, on the 8th. Just, it, yeah, it was really helpful for all of us. But then I suppose there's that sort of ritualized behavior in the first year or so, maybe a bit longer, but mm. then the beloved dead person does come forward with you as well. I mean, mm. once you've left their death behind, mm. the kind of there, and I find in things that I do or things that might, nobody else might know about, but like little gestures or something I might cook, and I don't make a big thing about it, but like I know that Nell, and sometimes I think, oh, fuck, I really want to just quickly text it. There was yesterday I thought, oh, I'm going to text it. I still have moments where you think yeah. I want to share this with her, but... There is a feeling of her coming along with you, and I'm sure you must feel that very strongly. That Iris, well, you you started this conversation by saying that mm. Iris, Iris is with yeah. you. Yeah, I do. Ha I have a. I feel I know that she is with me. Mm. Um, and there are lots of moments where, um, like, there's things that are funny on the internet or something that we would only we would find funny mm. and. You know, I wish I could send it to her and I can't think of who to send it to because no one would get it. But I also think it takes a long time for you to really accept that it's happened. Mm -hmm. Like for such a long time, like I can't even explain how it's so weird. For such a long time, like when my phone rang, I would think, oh my God, is it Iris kind of thing? Because my, whenever my phone rang, my I wouldn't think it was Iris because mm -hmm. it always was Iris in the past. But, um, but like it took a long time for me to really fully sort of accept that she had gone, really. Mm. I don't even know if you ever really fully, I don't know what processing it means. I just think that you just make it, you just bury it or you put it somewhere where it's manageable. Maybe there's a part of you that doesn't accept it because she hasn't gone, mm. because she is there. Yeah. I mean, how, I don't know, what do you believe in, what's your sort of belief in God or the spirit world or fate or mm. the universe? What do you believe in, as it were? Um, I don't really know. It's really interesting because Ben, Iris's father, he was very sort of uninterested in the spiritual world and very kind of didn't really spend much time thinking about God or what was beyond. And we had two very different responses. When, when Iris died, he went on this sort of like spiritual quest to figure out what was on the other side, like what different cultures believed and what he believed and to get to a place where he fully understood where he where she had gone. I kind of was very angry and felt like, even though I could hear her talking to me, even though I could feel her near me, I was sort of just telling myself, oh, you're just mad, this is grief, whatever. I actually almost went in the opposite direction. Having been a very spiritual person, I felt... Like, it's actually not possible but that, that there's a God and someone so kind of good and wonderful mm. and special. And what is any, you know, what have we done to deserve this sort of thing? But then slowly, slowly over time, I think that I believe that we don't fully understand what happens after we die. And I think that, you know, energy doesn't die. And whether it's conscious or not, who knows? But the energy that was her life force, that was the spark that animated her, for sure transmuted somewhere else into something mm. else. And I don't know what that means, but I do know that I feel her very close to me. And um, uh, 
And yeah, I'll just wait and see what happens when I die, I guess. <laughs> well, there is something in it we cannot explain. Like, however much science can explain this and that and this and that, this, mm. we cannot explain the kind of, and I don't know exactly what I believe in. And sometimes I believe in God and sometimes mm. I don't. And, but there is something inexplicable about, mm. you know, about life and death. And yeah. um, of course there is. And there's crazy stuff. Like that medium who I also met, you know, the stuff that she said to me and to Ben mm. was just, it was like beyond possibility that she knew those things. So, you know, who knows? You know, life is incredibly hard. It's full of beauty, but it's incredibly mm. hard. And and we need people, we need brave people and wise people around to help us. Do you feel that you have since her death sought out and been drawn to people who've been through big you know horrendously difficult things like this have you are there certain people who have helped you brave people who've mm. helped you yeah there are um weirdly actually the the person who i guess i relied on the most was my my partner and the father of my child mm. paul who experienced like he lost both his parents in the tsunami you know when they were just children they were there with their parents and their parents were essentially washed away and they had to get back from sri lanka by themselves and they you know it's like what they went through was unbelievable mm. and so he just had this like deep kind of strength and um understanding of this kind of pain. And he was really my, the person that I turned to the most. Mm. Because, not because we would talk about it for hours or something, but just because he, um, he could just be still beside me. And, you know, I haven't really sought out conversations, you know, like I don't actually feel that there's much to say. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I just... During the first year, I mean, it was really just people who could be could sit with my sadness and sit with my grief without trying to explain it away or, you know, say a bunch of stuff about how, you know, God tests you in life and stuff. (laughs) Exactly. About survival. It's just people who, Mm. you know, they just know. They know they know they've been through it and they just know and they're just there. Mm. And um that for me is what I found the most comforting. And mm. Paul was really the person who carried me through in that way. Knowing what we know about life, knowing how much loss and pain there is in it, do you think that we get braver as we get older? Um, yeah, I do. I think, I mean, I think that the more you go through, the more you realize what you're capable of, mm. what you're capable of surviving. And also you kind of like, I mean, there's not that much I'm afraid of now, really. You know, there are things back, you know, before this happened and stuff that maybe I would have really worried about or been kind of upset about. And like, you just, it puts everything into perspective, really. Mm. It just kind of makes you, it's, and that's, there's a freedom in that, you Mm. know, like the worst has happened and I have got past it and pretty much very little anyone could do now yeah. <laughs> that would that would um you know that would you know be a problem and think it is that is courageous and it is optimistic because you look at your children and you know you know young children they've got a beautiful life in front of them and mm. a terrifying life in front mm. of them with massive challenges and knowing that you know life does go on and that you you mm. do 
endure and and you know the green the green shoots that you were talking about are there that you do thrive not just survive it's not just a matter of no. survival yeah. it's a matter of growth and creativity and connection mm. is so so beautiful mm. um and so painful at the same time mm. <laughs> <laughs> with my sister's things i i've worn her clothes and i've really loved having them close to me to start with and i ha now have a few bits of hers what do you do with iris's things her mm. clothes her room well her room stayed exactly the same for three years mm -hmm. I didn't change a thing there were packages in there that she had arrived for her that she'd never opened that I mean it was just and then one day you know Isaac needed a bigger room and I just felt in my heart that I was ready and so I packed you know I packed up her stuff and I but I wasn't quite ready to get rid of it. So I've got it all. Mm. I've got everything she ever owned, basically, and it's all packed up in boxes and it's kind of up in the attic. Um, and then I have one box which has like special things of hers in it that she really cared about that were kind and that I very much sort of associated with her. And that box is in my room and it has like her Hello Kitty toy that she used to sleep with. Even though she was 15, mm. she would like still secretly suck the ribbon. Um, and um, And, you know, like certain necklaces and certain pieces of clothing and stuff. And I, um, you know, I have those in my room. I don't really go through them very much. Will you share your talisman with me? Yeah. So I, um, I brought this neck. Uh, it was just a necklace mm. of irises. Um, I mean, I have it really tarnished and like really doesn't look very good anymore because it was like obviously really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but it was this necklace that she wore all the time that says Miss February on it. And it's just a kind of little teenage necklace. Oh, that's so sweet. And after, um, and it's sort of with the like Playboy bunny, but, <laughs> but it was just, she just, you know, she wore it all every day really. And, um, and so I wore it every day for a while. So that is, you know, that, that sort of made me feel close to her and, and it just made, yeah, made me feel like I was keeping her with me at mm. all times, mm. but I don't so really wear it anymore, mainly because it dyes my skin brown. <laughs> Because it's like a real piece of yeah. It's so incredible when you when you were talking about bravery earlier. You said you know that in the first year you you got to moments when you were actually happy and that feeling of happiness breaking through and hearing mm. you laughing there about mm. you know it dyes your skin. Yeah, it's, just, it's just a piece of junk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so. Um, it's so optimistic and wonderful. Yeah, I mean it does have. I mean th you know. During the first year or the first month and stuff, like, you feel like you have been, I mean, not to be too gruesome, but like you've literally been skinned mm. and there is, and you are so exposed and you are so sensitive. And, you know, when, I mean, even just someone saying to you, she was so wonderful yeah. is like a dagger, yeah. you know, just, and people, it's so hard for people to know that the slightest word could just send you into the biggest spin. Um, you know, just hearing her describe, like talked about in the past tense was agonizing for me for mm. the first. And then it just, I just think that, you know, just as we heal from physical wounds, I think we just heal over time. I think that's what biology does. It's mm. like a biological imperative. It just, you know, otherwise we just wouldn't, this human race wouldn't go on, mm. you know. Mm. We have to get better and we have to, um, heal from these things so that we can 
I don't know, have more babies and, you know, just keep living. Keep creating. Yeah. yeah. You know, people often say in grief they've been isolated or friends don't know what to do. What advice would you say to somebody mm. who whose friend has lost a child? What what should they do? Um, I think the best thing you can do is to be present mm. and be there, but just to kind of do things like cook mm. and <laughs> tidy up and do the stuff that they're not really capable of mm. doing. But I just think, I mean, from my experience, um, nothing, like it's hard to get it right with what you say. You know what I mean? Mm. Like it's hard to, it's just better. Sometimes it's better not to say anything. Sometimes it's better just to be there and mm. just to like, that's why Paul was so good at this. He would just hug me. And that's all I wanted, you know, because there wasn't any talking. There wasn't any explaining. There was nothing you could say to make it feel better. And often people would make it worse with their trying to say something. Mm. Um, and also, you know, unless you've lost a child, you can't possibly, mm. possibly, possibly understand. So I just think be present. That's what I would say. And that's what I would do. Be present and do all the things that they can't do for them as much as you possibly can. And also, I think there's another hard moment with losing someone, child or anyone, I think, where people start to go back to their normal lives. Mm -hmm. And that's also quite difficult because you have felt, you have people around you and you felt, even though you're not really communicating with them and stuff, you felt sort of held. And also you felt like everyone is sort of in like everyone is sort of honoring her and grieving her and stuff but then when people start going back to their normal lives you just part of you is like you know is everyone just forgetting and how mm. can life go on and all this sort of thing so I think you know there were certain friends who would always every day just check in in some mm. way and I think just be you know just just be present a like con that yeah a continu continu continuous continuous yeah there were some people yeah. who would always message like for like years they would be like you know thinking of you today or mm. did you know and that was very very that was nice and that was helpful mm. I think everyone has different ways you know like Ben for example wanted to talk to as many people as possible I couldn't really talk to anyone mm. I just I needed the people who I could be the most vulnerable around just to be present yeah, it's the knowledge of the love of other people, really. It doesn't really mm. need to manifest in words or no. things. It's just the, the, that sense of love. Yeah. To somebody listening to us, what advice, you're such a brave woman, what advice would you give to somebody um, who needs to feel a bit braver in their life today? I think I would just tell them um, just to keep on going, really, just to kind of that there is without a shadow of a doubt, there is 100 percent light on the other side of whatever they're going through. You know, nothing stays the same. The only constant really is change and you will feel better. You just have to keep pushing forwards and pushing forwards and don't try to make yourself do too much. If you need to watch Netflix for a year, then mm. just watch Netflix for a year. But just keep, you know, keep pushing forwards. Yeah. The knowledge that everything, everything changes. Everything. I have a bracelet that says, this too shall pass, which yeah. my brother gave me, which says, yeah, in that, and it says it in Hebrew as well. And it was, I mean, it's a very well-known phrase, but it is true. You know, it will, one, even if it feels completely and utterly insurmountable, 
it's 100% certain that it will change and it will pass and you will feel better. You just have to stick it out and wait mm. and you'll, you will get there eventually. It's such a very, very important and very wise and very hard one and therefore incredibly valuable piece of advice. It's been a real privilege to talk to you and to talk about Iris. I love thinking about <laughs> Iris. <laughs> Thank you so very, no, very thank much, you. Kate. It's been really, It's been lovely to talk to you as well. Thank you so much. Talking to Kate about loss and bravery has been really helpful to me. And there's something about being with Kate which is really inspiring. She's an incredibly powerful and strong woman, but she wears her strength really lightly. Um, I loved spending that time with her. I am now recording this from America. <laughs> it's so funny thinking of those afternoons that I spent walking around in the fields around my house with my recorder as I was preparing for this move. But I'm now um, in DC, which is obviously a completely new life. And I felt I felt quite odd at times. I felt as though I'm kind of sort of free-falling into a new existence. I'm not quite sure what to hold on to, to make me me. And I'm interested by this new feeling of who am I without all the things, the places, the people, the objects, the landscape, the home that I have held close to me for a long time. All of those things are gone apart from my husband and my children. And those are obviously the most important people for me. And that's why I've moved to DC to be close to my husband, because he is working here. Um, it's really lovely to be with Pete. It's really lovely to see the children with him as well. So that's exciting. But I have felt strangely untethered, I suppose. Um, and I'm really curious. I'm really curious as to, to find out who I become in this new landscape, I suppose, and whether I just remain the same person or whether I can change. I've always been interested by the idea of how much we actually change and whether there is a kind of act of courage, I suppose, in creating that change. Anyway, next week I will be recording from the mountains north of New York because we're going to a log cabin in New York State. But... Um, yeah, we're on to the next part of the journey and um, I hope that you'll stay with me for the ride. Thank you for listening. I'm Clover Stroud and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.